Hi, everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Fundamentalists podcast. If you thought we were gone, we were for a little bit, but we're back now. Pete, how are you? I'm very well, sir. Um, how are you? Very good. It's rainy here in Los Angeles, as we were just talking saw, about. Oh, I saw a picture of you guys, or not a picture, a video of you guys going to Florida to see Weezer. When did yes, that yes. <laughs> well, when did that Grace, Grace and I did for Christmas. We got each other. Uh, we, we had categories of gifts, and one of them was an experiential gift. And so I got us like a cooking class with a chef to do as like part of a date that we've canceled three times already and she got me uh tickets to see weezer along with pitbull and imagine dragons uh at tampa stadium uh raymond wow. james stadium in tampa it was very fun and they did great weezer still got it and um imagine dragons the lead singer is incredibly uh built strong cut swole yeah. uh big boy ripped. is that right what is it the kids say ripped ripped he's ripped yeah yeah and uh and that made me he was all shirtless and um doing a great job but it made me uncomfortable and i was like ah we could probably leave uh now after weezer and was like that's too uh intimidating but it was a great time we had a wonderful experience oh very cool very cool yeah. how you about go? you what have you been up to oh this oh, last weekend last week um i have been yeah not doing too much just settling back in the belfast life and that's been a lot of fun um nice have I done anything exciting? Not. Can you describe not. that art behind you? Oh yeah, this is a detail from a piece of art. It's my one of my favorite pieces of art. It's by Barnett Newman. It's called the First Station, and um, cool. He's a very big fan of this notion of the zip, which is kind of this line that goes vertically down a painting. He was a contemporary of Rothko's, and Rothko was very interested in the horizontal line and Rothko with the vertical yeah. line. Um, cool. He creates this line, you can see it, is it is by negative space. So he take, puts masking tape down, paints, and then rips the masking tape off. So it's negative space. Um, nice. And uh, very interesting. I like I like his work a lot. This is kind of the high yeah. point of work. Yeah, it's cool. I like that a lot. It's very pleasant to look at. Um, and I don't understand it, but I do like Rothko. So, Pete, today, we are, we're going to do a new thing here, folks. We're going to do a, a new running gag where um as i mentioned it's been raining in la it's been raining in la for quite a bit of time and when your buddy gives you boxes and boxes of books to take care of sometimes the rain touches them and uh ruins them and then sometimes you think oh you'll just leave them out to dry them and they grow uh, mold all over them and so what we're going to do today is we're going to read a few book titles that pete doesn't own anymore uh these are books that pete used to have and he doesn't and uh, we're going to talk about them, and we're going to see what his reaction is to not having, to not having these books anymore. So the first, I can't believe you told me you told me about the disaster live on the podcast. I think that was very impressive. I know that was impressive in a real dick move, uh, <laughs> and I'm so sorry. But it, it 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 was you know I do it for the content, hilarious stuff. Yes. You know, just as a content I, creator, <laughs> I have no idea what has been destroyed, what has been lost to the uh, the floods. Because we may talk about creationism, about the worldwide flood today, but the flood that was LA, yes, uh, the local flood destroyed a lot of my books. You did not make an yes. art. So, um, uh, so this is going to be a regular segment of books I no longer own. Okay. Yes, books beat no longer owns. Um, and I don't and... know. If I'm here in this. I am here in this live, so I may cry at a couple of these. Right. 
Uh, let's see if you cry at this one, though, because I'd like to you, for you to explain yourself on this. I'm not going to say what it is. Uh, I want everyone to hear Pete's reaction uh, first. Oh, is that, is that Helmut Newton? I, yes, not, it is. Not, it is that's not his ass. I don't mean that's his ass. I mean, is that... It is someone else's ass, but it is a full-on butt, and it's a woman's... It's a book entitled... Do you want to read the title? Do you know the title? Oh, let me see. Because um, you're very small, and my... I can't, and it's I, backwards. Oh, I can make you bigger. I'm going to make you bigger. Oh, I can't. It's called White Women. <laughs> is it? That's yeah, not one of my white, books. That must white be one Women. Of <laughs> Yeah, no, I, no, 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 no. Uh, yeah, this is definitely, um, yeah. Um, it's a. I, I looked through it, and it is true to its title. It's What's a lot it of white women. Who's it by? Hell, you got it. Helmet Newton. Oh, Helmet oh, yeah, yeah. Newton. Yes. I, yeah, I thought so. <laughs> like this, I, was, I was very confused. Yeah, he's a very interesting artist. Actually, my friend Gavin Miller has a very Helmet Newton style. Um, yeah. And, I've seen uh, his yeah. stuff before. It's very sexy, very sexy photography. Very sexy. So yeah, so Newton was kind of like, he was this cool New York kind of like very, um, really, yeah, this very cool style. So I've lost that. Yeah. Oh well, don't mind too I much. About that I'm one. sorry. What about <laughs> logic and the? Uh, what about logic and the case other of Anselm nonsense and his God? <laughs> that is the weirdest title I've ever heard. Say it again. Logic and Other Nonsense. The Case ah. of Anselm and His God. It's really a case of bad graphic design. But oh, yeah. Does that sound familiar? Uh, yeah, no, that's a good book, actually. Um, that's a book I read, like, 20 years ago. Um, that is a good book. So you book, know how it but, ends. But I know, it, I know what it's arguing, so I don't mind it. I lost that. But that's, a, that's an interesting one, yeah. Are, are you familiar with the idea of uh, postmodern theology by Graham Ward. Yeah, I don't mind that. That that's that's from a long time ago. <laughs> Although that's like, a- you're just throwing authors that you'd probably know under the <laughs> under the bus. Now nah, I don't give. I know him. He doesn't give a shit. Uh, very funny. Oh, uh, this one sucks. That I I felt really bad about this one. German expressionist woodcuts. I'm really sorry. Oh yeah. Oh, I can get that, that one easier. Yeah, but that is that. That's a that, yeah. That's one of those coffee table books. Oh, that's okay. But that that is one that out of all of them so far, yeah. that's the one I miss most. That that one stings. Well, this one's gonna blow your mind. Uh, and I can get you another copy. This is called um, Ion by C. G. Jung. <laughs> Thank God they took something that I that I wanted to get rid of. Thank yes. It's so symbolic that it was a flood. Beautiful. Uh, uh, took finally took Jung out the waters I, I of the unconscious. Actually, I read that recently. Funnily enough, I read that after you decided to go down the dark path, and I thought, oh, I want to read that book because that's one of his, definitely one of his kind of like key texts in some respects. Some people really yeah. see that as yeah. It's uh, it's wild. That one he yeah. gets pretty wild. And then uh, lectures on the philosophy of religion by somebody named Hegel. <gasps> Which there's like three of those. Are they all gone? No, not all of them, Pete. <laughs> but volumes, I'm sure volume one is still around. Actually, these might be okay. Some of these uh, stacks I got confused. And uh, but anyway, uh, and then Jacques Lacan, The Death of an Intellectual Hero by Stuart Schneiderman. Oh, yeah, that's okay. He's actually, from what I remember, he is one of the he was a Lacanian who became quite critical of Lacan. I, 
Don't hold me to that. Anybody's listening, but I think so. So yeah, I don't mind that. Okay. okay this, yeah. Cool. Uh, well, you know, we'll visit more. Um, that's just scratching the surface, everybody, of this very awkward thing. And Pete, again, I'm so sorry that I ruined some of your belongings, but um, you know, some, that's um. He hasn't really given me a, a notion of how many. What is? Some... Well, I can't count that high. I can't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can. T- that I will tell you offline. <laughs> I genuinely. <laughs> Feels so bad. I mean, dude, it was like you would well, die. Just tell me, how long will this segment last? I mean, will this segment be for the next five years? If you did like it five trips a week? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we'll we'll keep it going. It'll last as long as the remainder of this podcast, for sure. Like, yeah. as a series. So, it'll be good. Uh, yeah, there's there's one. Uh, Tillich. You lost a Tillich. Anyway, all right. So, let's, speaking Tillich of... Um, Tillich book. Just tell me which Tillich book. You can't just leave oh, me in oh. <laughs> Just please, please just no, don't, don't just don't just leave me there. Uh, a guide for the perplexed. Oh, that's a bite, Tillich. That's okay. Okay, great. Um, why Marx was right, but I think I think you are you're aware of that in your mind. <laughs> I wonder who wrote that. Why Marx was right? Was that Terry Eagleton? You you got this stuff figured out. Yeah, that's exactly correct. He's a very good writer. Oh. He lives in Northern Ireland, funnily enough. Uh, Darian Leader. Lost Darian Leader. Darian Leader? Oh, Darian Leader. Oh, he's good. I lost Darian Why do women write more... Yeah, why do women write more letters than they send? Yeah, yeah, he's very good. He's uh, Nick Cave. That's right, yeah. Um, All right, so speaking of floods, speaking of ancient texts, uh, Pete, you... We talked... One of the reasons sometimes we don't do updated or regularly scheduled podcasts is because we'll chat and sometimes we'll postpone the chatting and it all just has a domino effect, but... One of the things that you mentioned last time we were talking is that you've gotten really into um, young earth creationism from uh, uh, you've become a little fascinated by it. We were talking about this in relation to me being into, I guess, UFOs or something. But I I love I hope I hope I didn't um, that maybe that that whenever you said about UFOs, I went, well, I'm into young earth creationism. You know, you may not think that they're the same. I get that they're very similar. I see the similarities, and we can talk about that, but I also find Young Earth creationism to be an incredibly, especially as someone who used to believe in Young Earth creationism, I always find it very fascinating to come back and revisit it. I'm curious about what got you re-into it, what you've been watching and consuming, and what your takeaways are as a result of consuming this um, very interesting subject that people tend to still believe in. Yeah, um, I love to kind of jump into weird rabbit holes like everybody on YouTube um, and get into stuff that's either minority or weird or wonderful, all of that. And I, you know, the young earth create, sometimes it's because I think the people who are on the outside, the outsiders, even, even if their position might be flawed and fundamentally flawed and you'll like this because i think it's why you like ufo stuff is there's always something really interesting in it you know sometimes they're very good at seeing a critique very good at seeing the problems with society sometimes it's kind of like there's something in what they're saying that while not literally true symbolically has a loads of value and loads of interest and then sometimes it's for me it's like intellectual sudoku like you're trying to figure out what is the central problem. I like to do that. If I'm going to watch something to kind of go, what can I isolate where things go wrong here um, in a very <laughs> solid way? 
what what's you what did you find what's your where did it go wrong mm. okay where does it go wrong with this say, say i get into hypothetically i start getting into um i go to the creationism subreddit i read a couple articles and all of a sudden i text you and i'm like hey pete you're not going to believe this but like i genuinely think that the earth is about five thousand years old <laughs> Uh, or 6,000 years old, and I believe that it was created in seven days, and um, I think I can prove to you why. <clears throat> yes, yes. So, well, the where I think it goes wrong, right, is, so Ken Ham is one of the major, as you know, good old, have you ever been to the Creationist Museum, by the way? No, but you know I will go the moment I'm in that town, like, yes. I, which well, might not be ever, but I really want to go to it. I've seen so many pictures and videos of people going through that and it is quite wild it is quite wild i mean I, yeah I, I kind of regret not doing it when i was in america uh -huh. um, so uh, someday i will do it but he obviously ken ham who i've heard speak live actually um nice. interestingly like about 20 or 30 years ago 20 years ago he was in belfast uh, i think he's been here a couple of times and um i've seen him do that's funny when I was in, uh, when we were going to this concert, it was at a place called Raymond James Stadium, and I turned to Grace and I was like, the first time I went to Raymond James Stadium was when I was a child and I saw Billy Graham live. So oh. that's another heavy hitter in that world. I don't that's know if you're familiar with Dr. Graham. Dr. Graham, yeah, he's a fascinating guy, fascinating. But I don't Ken know if he had a doctorate. Yeah. Yeah, Ken Ham is a different, Ken Ham is a different breed. So, uh, yes. and he seems quite, when I see Ken Ham stuff, he always seems quite upset quite angry not he doesn't seem like the guy with a great sense of humor no no and i, I kind of wonder because i did watch a lot and i do wonder whether he's he's kind of chilled out a tiny bit because when, okay. when i saw him he was very angry. in fact i got talking to him i went with a friend of mine called william crawley who's a bbc journalist and william crawley was interviewing him so um i don't know if it ever happened you know went live or anything like that but um he definitely was quite aggressive kind of guy you know like or just kind of defensive i guess um i don't know whether he's lightened up slightly but he is a very intense person um yeah. thankfully like if if he based his arguments purely on biology then that's not my area and whatever but thankfully ken ham's central argument is a philosophy argument so that means it's in my wheelhouse and he basically says and it's kind of an interesting argument so you'll see what you think of this so his argument is basically everyone kind of has a metaphysical position, you know, whoever you are. And the two major metaphysical positions, just to simplify it dramatically is, and he doesn't use these terms, but these are the philosophy terms. You're either an idealist or a materialist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're an idealist, you know, the most simple form of idealism is m mind is the foundation of matter at the very core of reality is thought is mind is reason out of which everything arises and if you're a materialist you say that mind arises out of matter and that phenomenon of matter right so there's your two metaphysical positions and then ken ham this is said, a great 101 this is a, a very succinct uh it's good this is good like <laughs> that's good okay yeah it's good and then he says which is an interesting argument he says if you're a scientist you're coming with basically one of these positions and he says most most biologists are he would call it naturalists which is materialists so most most biologists are not metaphysical naturalists so when they see the evidence uh they read and filter the evidence through metaphysical naturalism 
And when a creation scientist, when Ken Ham does it, he says, listen, I have my metaphysics as well. I'm just as guilty as everybody else. I, I'm a, he would say supernaturalist or whatever, or a Christian, you know, young earth creationist, but an idealist. He's a form of idealist. He says, so I, I look at the same data as the metaphysical naturalist, and I filter that data through my metaphysical presupposition. Same data, you kind of come to different results. And he says, the problem is a lot of biologists don't admit that they're metaphysical naturalists. And they that that's not a scientific position. That's a philosophical, that's a metaphysical position. Yeah. And that's why ultimately for Ken Ham, the argument is more basic than science. It comes down to metaphysics. So what do you think of that argument? Sold. Absolutely sold. Mm. So when you I come to... I don't have any notes. What's that? I have no notes. I, I, I think that it's... I think that Ken Ham's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, it's like a very, like, old... Like, I've the, everyone... Oh, the scientists have this, like, lens that they see everything through, and it's materialism, and they sometimes can't step out of their own materialistic lens in order to entertain different ideas. But my understanding, and this goes back to, like, folks like Jeff Kripal and folks who are in kind of that academic world is a lot of the people in the biological sciences are not as strict Darwinian uh, evolutionists as sometimes people like Ken Ham might like to imagine. Maybe they were like 40 years ago, but there's still like a more openness now than there used to be. I think it's not quite as, as black and white as what um, Ken Ham wants to say it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. And like, also like I, the, now, see if you think this critique works, because this is this is where the this is where I think it goes wrong. Okay, great. I'm fu- I'm so excited. Is that he's I, like? Let's assume he's right. I like to kind of assume the person's right, uh, and then go, and then yeah. do reductio ad absurdum, whatever. So, but let's kind of assume he's right. Like we all have metaphysical positions that they're not based on our observation of the world. We kind of impose them, uh, kind of deductively on the world. Um, there's a there's a sociologist called Peter Berger who he says and he says that but when someone does science they they it is true that they become a naturalist or a materialist but methodological naturalist not a metaphysical naturalist so metaphysically you could you know believe that in yeah. being an idealist but yeah but as soon as you you're doing scientific work you assume that there is a natural explanation to what you're studying and yes that and so i think the mistake ken ham makes is not making a distinction between metaphysical naturalism and methodological naturalism you know so there are a lot of scientists actually who do have religious beliefs but when they're doing scientific research they're always looking for a natural uh, cause to the effect that they're studying yeah um, and it, and they may uh, ulti- oh, go ahead. no after you please uh, I was going to say like they, they might ultimately think for example scientists might ultimately think that uh, there's a, a mind behind everything or that started everything um, but they still approach the world naturalistically and the idea is maybe eventually they think they'll come to a dead end but they have to keep pushing yep. yeah until that point in my uh, experience, I was so just a good, good, 
precious kid in college, and I was trying so hard to be what I thought was uh, balanced. So, you know, some people, they're the naturalists or the materialists, and then other people, they're Christian or idealist or whatever uh, they, they do. And so I would read, like, creationist stuff while in zoology classes, and it was like my degree had a bunch of, like, evolution. Like, it was... The technical term is zoology with an emphasis in like ecology, evolution and biology. And so it was a lot of evolution. And it took about mm, like a month uh, before I was like, oh, no, this is like a you can't really ignore that. This is this is all how it basically happens. But then going into things like philosophical or metaphysical stuff over the years, I've kind of gone from the, the, the hard and fast Darwinian evolutionist stance to something akin to evolutionary panentheism or something where uh, consciousness is more of a fundament than um, like an offshoot of, of the brain. But um, it is interesting because I don't think it is – I don't think you – I think there's a heck of a leap that these guys do with uh, with creationism because they go, well, we think there's something, so it must be this. It must be God. It must be Genesis, and it must be like, and it's like that's a very specific, you know, maybe an overreaction a little bit. Maybe there is something to be said about consciousness, but uh, going back to reverting or regressing to a literal understanding of Genesis seems like a bad move. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think that that hits on another issue that I've been kind of hitting against watching Ken Ham is he's not just an idealist, as you're saying, like he's not just um, kind of like reflecting on the idea that either there's an intelligence or even a mathematical structure. I mean, I, I, an idealist might simply say that there's a um, mathematics is the necessary foundation yeah. for all reality. So idealism you know, doesn't commit someone to belief in God. Um, uh, but um, he's not just saying that, but he's he's kind of that he he is actually making claims that are scientifically verifiable and falsifiable. Which is that, as you say, six thousand years ago there was a global flood. Um, you know, yeah. certain dinosaurs lived among human beings. Uh, you know, there is no kind of uh, my, what they call macroevolution um, in the fossil record. Like they're, they're, they are actually making claims oh. yeah, to, to science. When you said, when you said micro macroevolution, I felt my brain hurt for a second. That brought something back. Oh, oh no. yeah. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. It's like that when they do the, um, uh, you, you sure you can, you can do microevolution or you can adapt, but you can't switch species. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's clever. It's clever because that allows them to to kind of like admit what is obvious, which is adaptation happens. I mean, you can you can actually see it in uh, you know fruit yeah. flies, whatever, uh, with while trying to deny species uh, trans transformation. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I believe in sand, but I don't believe in uh, beaches. Basically. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's quite that's good. Well, here I'm interested because you, I forgot, like you were you were studying zoology in university. Were you when you were studying zoology under the influence of creationism? Still, and oh, absolutely, was, yeah, yeah. So, what was that like? Because and and did you bring the creationism in to like? Did you talk to any of your professors about it? No, no, I was pretty well aware of where they kind of stood on it, but I also just paid attention as much as I could to the classes. <laughs> but I think this goes into a different area of this 
conversation, which is, yeah, it definitely had a huge impact on whether I, on my, my level of devotion toward that version of Christianity at the time. I mean, it definitely made it so that I was like, this doesn't make any sense because that it's so tied into, uh, uh, the the genealogy that gets to like Jesus that people then have this attachment to young earth creationism where if they lose that they lose the the foundation of their whole faith basically so like they have to kind of keep it otherwise the house of cards will fall and at one point I was just like I just let the house of cards fall because I was like oh this isn't and I found at least when I was in college evolution is a pretty cool theory like it's very it's a kind of a beautiful theory it's darkly beautiful and there's a lot of death but like the way it works uh i once i got it and i understood that it wasn't just like oh we evolved from monkeys or something um then i was like oh this is actually really really incredible it still didn't explain everything and i still don't think it explains everything but uh still really really intense and then yeah i was just like okay cool i like i like it. and i kept it quiet i didn't really talk about it yeah i didn't talk about creation I didn't talk about evolution. I just sort of kept my mouth shut. Yeah, and that that is interesting because Ken does do that. He um he links it with your belief. So if you know, he says basically, if you believe in Jesus, and if you believe then, in terms of confessional Christianity, if you believe in Jesus died for et etc., cetera, et cetera, then that commits you to believing as you knew all of this but it commits you to believing in a literal fall a literal adam and eve so it's quite clever because yeah. it, in a way it's not that you you believe in creationism because you know you studied it it's because you know you're maybe seeing it tied into another belief that you take to be true um yeah it becomes and, uh great 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 grandfathered in because mm. that's about how far back it goes yeah. And, and, and you know and something else you mentioned there which is which is very true agree good nice um is uh, <laughs> is that um it's it's a darkly beautiful theory which which actually for for many theists is a bit of a problem because like evolution kind of is premised on the idea that there's there's is an unfathomable amount of death and suffering like unfathomable yeah. amount uh, yeah. of, of of death and suffering that that has arisen that has had to be gone through to kind of get to you know you know where we are yeah. for example now and that you know that's that could be quite a lot for someone to take to go like oh the kind of in a way that the most of the universe is black and lifeless devoid of anything and even this planet this one little planet that as far as we know at the moment you know is has got life in it has been and c.s lewis talked about this most of it has been uh, either lifeless or suffering <laughs> and it's only yeah. brief moments where animals have had non-suffering um you know it's very minor yeah. moments in the whole of history uh that's that's a quite a that's quite a pill to swallow and yet we still are here and we get to watch tv shows and read books and play video games like i was doing uh, an hour and a half ago so it all i i walked away with a deeper appreciation for nature and for animals after doing zoology uh i i think i also had a certain level of anger and frustration about the amount of just like scientifically speaking bullshit that the uh young earth creationists do but then i came back around to think it's kind of hilarious like there's this thing called the hydroplate theory are you familiar with this hydroplate theory um i'm not sure tell me about it i don't think so don't think I've come it explains the flood in terms of the mid-atlantic ridge at the between the um 
to Pacific in the what is it? I don't know. I don't know where the oceans are, but that is the if you look at a globe, there's like a trail between the <laughs> Europe and Africa and North and South America where you can see this thing. And they this guy was like, oh, what that was was a volcano, but it didn't erupt. Um, uh, lava it erupted water all the water was trapped under the plates and so um god caused it to explode out from that which the water shot up at such a speed that it looked like it was raining all over the world and that's what caused the flood oh yes because i have heard some creations talk about actually the flood yeah it rose it didn't fall right hence you know that maybe that's a way of explaining why uh rainbows then came later once rain whatever stuff right yeah yeah um, which I do love the rainbow story. I mean, and then you get into like the uh, the actual myth element, and then I find so what I found is zoology helped me pop the young Earth creation thing, and I found myself very much liking animals. And then the mythological mythological aspect helped me reappreciate the Genesis story in a way that didn't feel like I was being bullshitted the entire time. So it all worked out in the end. I don't. I get. I feel bad for folks who are still like. Uh, bad sounds condescending, uh, but I feel like there's more joy to be had if you can kind of step away from that a little bit. And that's yeah. my preaching for yeah. this episode. <laughs> Very good. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think the creation story, yeah, like yourself, has um, a really interesting depth to it. And that's why it remains interesting. I, I take it primarily as a kind of Jewish Oedipal story. So same as, you know, when Oedipus... Uh, you know, kills his father and marries his mother or whatever. Um, you have basically break the prohibition to get the object of desire. You see a similar structure in Adam and Eve, who the prohibition of God, they break through the prohibition to get the apple to become like God. And it's disaster. Yep. So yeah, I see some fascinating kind of um, psychoanalytic kind of insights into it. Once you kind I of like, like, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Once you, uh, yeah, I was just going to say that it's, uh, that, that's also where you can just go and look at it and see the relevance for your life. I think that there's more relevance to your lived experience if you view things like that than if you view them as a historical document, which just, you know, strips you strips them of their kind of multifaceted uh, quality, I guess. But um, yeah. yeah, and I, I like also the idea of the snake being like Lilith, uh, who came back um, after Lilith was, uh, what was it? She, she refused to lie with adam she wasn't going to take that so she went out and had sex with demons or something like that in the ocean and then came back as a snake and tempted eve to get back mm. i mean that's fun too so it gets really it's 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 good stuff i mean i'm a big fan of genesis i just don't think that there's many literal answers in them yeah but just, just to let the listener know that because what you're referring to because that um there's Please, dude i butchered it <laughs> oh yeah it's great no 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 we actually got it completely right but they might go where does lilith come from um whereas there, there's a little bit in the in genesis where it says on the sixth day god created male and female and then later on it says Oops. after adam had named all the animals and da, 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 he got lonely and so one night god took a piece of flesh from him and made woman so there's this interesting question of well who was the woman who was made on the sixth day with adam because eve was made after the fact when Adam was bored and had done all this work. Now, and it's just, but where some rabbis then told the story of Lilith, who was born on the sixth day with Adam as an equal. And so it's, it's brilliant. And then this story becomes fascinating. Oh, and Lilith. Oh, and 
No, after you, please go ahead. Lilith, oh what? yeah, I was going to say my favorite bit of the story is Lilith um, gets God to tell her his secret name, and God tells her his secret name, and then Lilith speaks it aloud and gets this power of God because she had the name of God. She was able to signify the name of God. Um, there's real interesting stuff cool. in that that notion so yeah and that's when she left eden to sleep with demons and whatever yeah it's uh it's a very fun i also have seen people talk about like the idea of in um you know what is it complementarianism and a traditional sort of christian thing where the male and the female have complementary roles but they're different and they're sort of I think it's a, what is that, essentialism of some kind, but then the whole idea of Lilith is that she was immediately equal to Adam and like they couldn't, Adam couldn't handle it. So there's a fun little like feminist uh, critique in there too, oh, yeah. which is nice. Right. Yeah, I talk about Lilith uh, in my uh, my second book, Fidelity of Betrayal, actually, I talk about Lilith. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Cool. Um, Scary. She seems, she scares the crap out of me. Uh, yeah. Which she should, because uh, she's like part, she's out there being a, what is it, succubus? Is that what it is? Or no, that would make her the demon. I don't know. Words are confusing. <laughs> you know, one of the things as well, I want to see what you think of this. Like, this is my more controversial view. Um, oh, here, one other thing. I, I like the creationists. I love listening to Scientologists as well. That's another thing, a rabbit hole. I need to do that. Yeah. yeah. I've listened to so many hours of both Scientology and actually there's, there's lectures by L. Ron Hubbard that you can get as well that I've listened to. Very oh. interested in that. And OT8 and... You know, all of the, the mythology of L. Ron Hubbard's fascinating. Um, cool. But the thing that's maybe more controversial to say is I think that there is an interesting link or way of reasoning that is very similar between someone like Ken Ham, the creationist, William Lane Craig, the, the Christian philosophical apologist, and people like Sam Harris and uh, James Lindsay. Uh, now, they're very different on the surface, but I think there's a lot of similarities between their love of this simplistic kind of clarity um, that, that whenever you listen to them, uh, you kind of get caught up in the kind of the clarity, the seeming ability to destroy all arguments in their wake. Um, but... Uh, and also, however, this, uh, a kind of sim a simplistic kind of like yeah. logic. So, because I love watching James Lindsay. Do you ever watch James Lindsay stuff? I think maybe you've you've told me about him. Let me Google him. I feel like I've you've mentioned James. What is James? Oh, wait a minute. This guy. Oh, this guy's such a turd, man. I find uh, so. This guy's. No, he is. He actually is because he. I was following him on. Twitter. I saw him get owned on uh, Twitter a little bit, but he he did a really interesting. What was that speech he did on like wokeism and how woke will like essentially like turn around and all that? You know, it's yeah. the typical uh, anti woke thing. But what what does he actually do? Because he 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 seems to have quite a bit of um, different uh, shades of the common right wing opinions. I guess I would say. Yeah, he, he's fascinating um, because he actually reads um, philosophy. He reads it, you know, very badly, but he reads it. Like, so whereas some of the kind of the thinkers who I enjoy watching and listening to as well, but like people like Sam Harris or um, 
uh, Camille Pallier or these people, they are even Jordan Peterson. They haven't really read the stuff, right? So it's quite easy to critique. I, by the way, I do, as you know, I agree with their concerns more so maybe than you. I, like, I agree with their concerns about kind of critical race theory, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think, I think they take yeah. it too seriously. But what the difference between most of those people and James Lindsay is James Lindsay actually reads philosophical texts and goes through them. So he reads, there's a philosopher called Herbert Mucusa, for example. He's always talking about, he reads his, his stuff. So I really like listening to James Lindsay because he, although he gets it all a bit wrong, um, he's he is at least reading it. <laughs> so it's fast. Yeah. Which he's putting some effort in. Yeah. And, but also he, he's got this kind of clarity that's the same as Ken Ham and William Lane Craig and Sam Harris is kind of like this seeming clarity that that actually when you start picking it apart um yeah doesn't work you know it's but like the shiny very shiny arguments that are very slick and clean and there's nothing to wear and then you're like wait a minute yes I think yes what you're saying is bullshit yes i like and i think i think my my guess at the moment and i haven't thought about it too much but is it my my I think where they all go wrong is they're not dialectic thinkers. They're all causal thinkers. So like if they're talking about, say, Democrats and Republicans, they see them as opposites or atheism and theism, they see them as opposites and they don't see how the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are intimately interwoven in various political, cultural, religious ways. They yeah. don't see how theism and atheism are intimately interconnected in various complex ways. So. There's, there's always an enemy that is easy to critique. Something here that's easy to critique that's, yeah. that's different from what I'm saying. And um, that kind of thinking is always very appealing because it makes everything very simple and put, you put things in buckets. Uh, but whenever you get into intellectual life, you kind of realize how interconnected everything is. So is that what you're saying the link is between the, the Ken Hams and the, the, yeah, it's a very like, um, it's just different sides of the same basic idea, right? Like they're both going, these people bad, this idea bad, the evolutionists are bad, the Republicans are bad, the Democrats are bad. Yeah, that, that's what I think. Like, so like if I put it, and this is helping me think it through, but so William Lane Craig, for him, atheism and theism are separate opposites. He's a theist, there's atheists, and you kind of like, he wants to convince some atheists and he engage, but they're very separate. For Ken Ham, there's naturalism and supernaturalism. They are, you yeah. know, very different. Um, and for uh, James Lindsay, there's kind of like, kind of proper philosophical or intellectual thought. And then there's this kind of like, you know, continental rubbish or whatever. And for, you know, Sam Harris is kind of written and again, is very kind of simple kind of, I think, black and white way. So I think that's, that's what is so appealing about them and also where the main error is. When you say continental rubbish though, aren't you a continental guy? I am. I'm a continental thinker. So James Lindsay, he hates continental philosophy. Um, so he reads. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So yeah, he, um, Yes. So all the people that I like, I like, he would kind of hit. I mean, someone like Herbert Mucusa, I don't think he's that great either, but he's definitely much better than James Lindsay thinks he is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very funny. Well, here, here's an example, actually. So one of the things James yeah. Lindsay doesn't like about Mercusa is 
Mercuse has this really interesting argument that at first any analytic thinker is not going to like, which is, um, you know, he kind of basically says that in contemporary society, we are less alienated. We're happier. You mentioned that we can play computer games. We can watch TV. We can, we're not doing I didn't say happier, but we can't do those things. We can't do those things. And we... (laughs) And, and we're, you know, we're not doing jobs necessarily that destroy our bodies in the same way that they might have a hundred years ago, et cetera, et cetera. And so, uh, someone like Mercuse goes like, we live in a society in which alienation is no longer subjective. And James Lindsay reads this as kind of going like, well, so why would Mercuse be critical of society when he admits himself that things are better now, but then Mercuse comes off with the argument that alienation is objective. In other words, we are depressed and we don't know it. We can be, we can, we can basically be in the, the words of uh, Martin McEwen, amusing ourselves to death. So we don't know we're, we're alienated. We don't know that we're oppressed. We actually think we're happy. We're, we're taking drugs. We're watching TV. We're da 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 da. But actually, objectively, we are in alienation. Um, and so James Lindsay, you know, finds these kinds of arguments ridiculous because it's kind of dialectic, you know, either capitalism works. Some people say capitalism works and that's why we should have it. Some people say capitalism doesn't work. So if you say capitalism works, you might say, well, there's increasing health, increasing better technology, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So lives of people around the globe are being helped. Somebody else might say capitalism doesn't work. It generates recessions, depressions, uh, economic precarity, et cetera, et cetera, nuclear proliferation, environmental crisis, whatever. But again, the dialectic person says, no, capitalism works because it doesn't, because it, there's yeah, something. Yeah, I thought you were going to say capitalism yeah. works and that's why we shouldn't do it. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, yeah. It's almost like, you know, sometimes people say, does your relationship work or does it not? If it works, stay in it. If it doesn't work, don't. But actually relationships work because they don't, for good or for bad reasons. It's actually the problems that yeah. often keep us interconnected. So James Lindsay hates that kind of logic, <laughs> you know, drives him bananas. No, that can't be true. It doesn't make immediate sense in my brain. And therefore, uh, this book is a little collection of essays by the Jungian Rafael Lopez Pedraza. It's called Cultural Anxiety. And uh, it made me think of that. But one of the um, things that we were looking into in the tech class that I'm taking or technology is dealing primarily with the way it's, you know, all different words to say the same thing, but dissociation and numbness that we now feel where, uh, and it's this general idea that the... Freud had hysterics and Jung dealt with schizophrenics, but now um, the major like quote unquote neurosis is the inability to feel the neurotic symptoms. Like people are unaware that they are, yes. whether it's depression or anxiety or anger or um, even happiness. Like we have a, we're very numb and, uh, and technology helps kind of like increase that numbness and it. That's, it made me think of that. So, oh, very good. Uh, no, that, that's, that's brilliant. Cause that is very true that that's exactly what Marcuse is arguing about in his book, one dimensional man, which, I mean, he basically, what, what Marcuse says is, um, it's very difficult to have basically Marcuse is a typical, uh, you know, continental academic. He wants to help people become revolutionary subjects, which is basically subjects who, um, instigate transformation, right? And he says that that it's probably not possible today. But one of the reasons why he says it's 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 almost impossible is because in order to be 
in order to become a revolutionary subject, you have to feel dissatisfaction. Like you almost have to go yeah. to your job and like not like it. And that doesn't make you a revolutionary subject, but it creates a possibility because you don't like it. You see the problems, you feel shit. Yep. Because today, you know, if you're working for Facebook, uh, they obviously doesn't use this example because this was 50, <laughs> a long time ago. But if you're working for Facebook, as I've said before, you know, not only do you have to work for them, you have to like it, right? There's, oh, so yeah. you're alien, you don't even know you're alienated. That's what Mercuse says is one dimensional man. You don't have two dimensions rubbing against each other. You kind of, you don't even know that you're, you're in suffering, right? And he yeah. has this beautiful, he calls it euphoria. I think he calls it something like, euphoria and sadness which for him is drug drug use for example you take drugs you feel euphoria but it's euphoria in the midst of of oppression and sadness you know yeah yeah uh yeah that's uh that's so sad uh, the i forget what i was going to say but it, you said something i don't remember what it was but uh anyway but it, we got off the topic of creationism but it's the same maybe creationism is the drug i guess that's the linking but yeah yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I wonder if we can connect back to that. And definitely connect it to like stuff we've talked about lots before. But this idea that we do ha we do live in a society where it's kind of you know, seize the day, and and we're told you know we can do it, and we become our own oppressors to some extent. And um, the that that in Lacanian terms, the superego becomes the superegoic injunction to enjoy, and it kind of you're actually oppressed by your own enjoyment, whether it's watching yeah. soap operas or whatever. Like we kind of, and as say that Marshall McEwen book, Amusing Ourselves to Death is a great title because it kind of great says, time. yeah, we somehow, amusement is a way in which we feel okay, but our, our sadness, our depression, our symptoms become objective. They become yeah. visible in our body, not in our subjectivity. Nice. Yeah. The, um, we were talking about the idea of um, one, the idea of wholeness being um, like the idea of wholeness being different from perfection and that relating to the idea of spectacle and how that is sort of a perversion of awe. And so we seek awe and we seek like a transformative experience. But then what we end up settling for is spectacle where we just sort of hypnotize ourselves with screens and entertainment and drugs and whatever uh and it's not it's like a cheap copycat of what the actual thing is when you when you really feel moved by something and it's so hard to do it, so we're just like reinforcing this it's very sad it's not a good situation somebody's got to fix it yes <laughs> actually and you mentioned the word spectacle that's a very important word um and the academic du Bois, i think is he talks about that like and he said yes spectacle is almost like where we we get so caught up in in the visual world that we're in and exactly yeah. what you say is that kind of covers over the kind of inherent kind of alienation and oppression and so basically we maybe we earn we make less and less we own less and less everything becomes higher we be, it kind of we enter into a type of neo-feudalism and we all do it with smiles on our faces um this is i know that this is what some people a lot of people on the right and on the left are worried about this um and i this is and I, I i see this as a worry that's shared by people on both sides which is um this this real concern that we are moving towards more totalitarian kind of neo-feudal types of social relations and and we're amusing ourselves as we walk towards that. So there are people <laughs> <on> the... <laughs> yeah. just walking uh, off the bridge. Yes, exactly. 
do you get for i mean i get frustrated when i watch people like um a lot i think this goes back to what you're talking about with the sam harris thing but you'll see someone like sam harris on something like joe rogan or something and i don't know maybe we need to get you a manager or something we got to get you on let's let's be real maybe you can get on like not you won't be able to get on rogan i don't think but i know where we're gonna go well like what <laughs> have you heard of the fundamentalists yes uh, there you go. I can get on that. Um, <laughs> uh but no the i think someone who has at least some kind of like even having zizek on to rogan i think will be so nice because he without realizing it, I think all of the guests that that whole ecosystem brings in have no interest in this kind of thing. And as a, as a listener, I'm, I end up frustrated because I'm like, why are, bring up the, what about what's going on unconsciously? What about what's going on that people aren't aware of? And people are only, like you're saying, they take that kind of very causal approach and in, in very surface level. And it, it's, um, if anything else, kind of boring after a while, they need to spice it up. That That's my only real Freud. Yeah, I, I don't I don't share the critiques a lot of people have of Joe Rogan. I like him. I think he seems like a great guy. My only critique is actually what you're saying, exactly what you're saying, which is, and it's just because he doesn't know, but that he all the thinkers are non-dialectic. None of the thinkers, um, as you say, embrace or explore notions of the unconscious or death drive or yeah. dialectics. And, and that's a failure on the part of... Um, our team, right? Uh, you know, that's a failure in the sense of there's very yeah. few people who are, who are good at articulating that. A guy that I really like, I mean, I say, I hate to say who I like because, you know, you all go off people, but I do think Lex Friedman has a very Socratic method. I do like him a lot. He just interviewed Sam Harris and I thought he did a great job um, of kind of... Did you watch that? Oh, go ahead. No, I, I, but I have, I've only ever listened to like one Lex Friedman podcast and I know he gets criticism because he quote unquote platforms people that are unsavory at times, but he also, when I listened to him, I did kind of get the impression that he, A, is a little for my taste, not quite as, um, what's the word I'm looking for, zesty, he's a little boring at times, but his questions are very good and you can tell he really researches who he's talking, yeah. I would listen to W, or um, Pasolka, uh, who wrote um, this book, uh, American, hang on, hang on, hang on, don't ruin it, don't ruin it. This, um, D.W. Pasolka, uh, UFOs, Religion, Technology, American Cosmic, really great book, uh, and it's a beautiful cover, but I was listening to her interview, and he did just a great job, but I'm curious what the conversation was like with him and Sam Harris. Yeah, no, I find him very, very good for a number of reasons. One, he has a very Socratic method, so he, so he's very empathetic. Um, in that he tr attempts to understand the position of the other person, and he's and he doesn't get doesn't rise to anything. So and he asks lots of questions, and he asks them in non-defensive way. So yeah, he has a yeah. very Socratic style, and that Socratic style can often draw out very subtly the contradictions in someone's thinking. Now, as you probably know, like Sam Harris has gone through a bit of a tough period with his. A lot of his followers are frustrated with him about a number of his views that he's had recently and, you know, really feel that, that he hasn't been thinking as clearly and consistently as as he should, because that's the one thing, you know, Sam Harris is known to be a very clear and consistent thinker. Yeah, and in many ways he is. I mean, I've never... I've never, say, been a huge fan because I don't think when he writes on ethics and stuff, I've never been that impressed. But still, I respect him. I know I've met him a few times and 
seems like a nice guy. Um, but the Lex Friedman interview very carefully, I think, drew out, you know, some of the kind of like uh, circles that Harris has kind of got himself into with some recent kind yeah. of positions. But I do say Lex, Lex Friedman is great at the questioning. And so I'm hoping, but again, he loves the kind of same kind of thing as Joe Rogan, similar type of audience. I would love to see him interview somebody who takes seriously the unconscious or dialectic. Yeah. Or death drive. Yeah. I Which think you that that was the name that popped in my head when I said maybe not Joe Rogan, but that was I was like maybe Lex Friedman or something. I think you could yeah. do a great job on because you should go in and basically sabotage. I mean, you got to be a Trojan horse, uh, and you got to do that thing where you drop all of these crazy ideas, and then everybody yeah. goes, "Wow, that's nuts! I've never thought of it that way." And then you and then you go up the then you become the next Russell Brand, and so then you get hated by that, a bunch of people. Yes. So you vote, you know, I love this, this strategy you have. The first step is just the hard one. <laughs> so yeah. the first step is get on Lex Friedman. <laughs> and That's then like when I first, yeah, when I first moved to Los Angeles and my family members would be like, well, you should just go get on a TV show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That's cool. That's a good idea. Maybe I will. Uh, Maybe I'll do about that. Yeah. It's like the first step um, to being successful in business is have ten million dollars. Okay. Have rich parents. Yeah. Have rich uh, parents. Have have a diamond mine somewhere, but um, or emerald mine. Excuse me. That's um, uh, Musk's thing. But anyway, so back to creationism. So let's let's yeah. let's bring it. Are you? Um, have you ever at any point when you're watching this stuff? taken a step back and gone dang that's a really good point scientifically not um, philosophically yeah. well you know interestingly like a long time ago i got uh a wee bit more into it like i even read some of the books and some of the things you know i thought like that they were they were drawing out some of the limitations some of the kind of the gaps yeah. and i think that's probably quite useful but i I would say no for two reasons. So one, they haven't been convincing to me at all. So for example, when they talk about the irreducible complexity of the eye, like, no, I, wrong. like I, from the little I know, but Bullshit, I know wrong. they're wrong. Yeah. Like there's, that's easy to see how the eye develops easy. Photosensitive, or photosensitive cells to yeah. kind of, to concave, to, uh, yeah. you know, pin, pin and there's living eye. animals that you can look at that have, like you could build the eye piece by yes. yeah it's not i mean yeah i mean even darwin saw it and he was at the very beginning so um none of those convinced me but the other thing which i do try to avoid is i also go there might be the odd good argument in there but because i'm not trained as a biologist i wouldn't know i haven't been convinced by any but i i can only look at them from a philosophical place but thankfully I think, you know, from a biological position, they get wiped out all the time. Obviously, there's not very much good there. That's why I think Ken Ham has retreated yeah. to, to metaphysics. I like it genuinely, like his position, though, he keeps coming back to it, is is like not arguing. He does argue for creationism, but his, his main thing is, hold on, we both come with our presuppositions. I just have different presuppositions. Everybody does it. Yeah. Yes. And, it, and, and the funny thing is biologists don't know how to respond to that because they're not philosophers. So that's where he can kind of get, he can kind of muddy the water a little bit, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorite creationist critiques is why aren't there um, 
more fossils, even though A, there's a lot more than people realize, and B, it's incredibly difficult for any fossil to be formed. It's like miraculous that we have any kinds of bones, um, even though they're not bones. But um, that was also something that blew my mind when I was in college, just finding out that skeleton, uh, the fossils aren't actual bone. I always thought that they were the actual bones that we found, but they're replaced by sediment. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I'm Uh, guessing. I wanted to look into that more because the last time I looked at the fossil record was honestly with decades ago. I'm going like, I'm sure maybe there's a lot more in the last Tons. 20 years. Is there? Like, it's probably a lot more. Uh, yeah. Transition oh, species. Yes. Yes. Have they found? Yeah. Because that's one of the things creationists love to talk about. You know, that we can't. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, you, so, you you see different kinds, but you can't you can't see anything between any of them. Well, that's that's what yeah you can, but um, yeah, that's my understanding at least. And I do believe, from what I understand, that people are also not as materialistic, I guess. Uh, and by the way, folks, if you can hear the just pouring rain, I apologize. I don't know if that's going to get pick up on the audio, but um, I can't we're hear getting it. flooded, yeah. and I'm in my little uh arc. So, um, anyway, so creationism is a very funny theory, and what I get. I would get a little frustrated with is the um, history of uh, our relationship, especially in America, with evolution in the classrooms, because I feel like that's an incredibly, I don't think it's fair to deprive kids of the most um, plausible scientific theory about the creation of the species because of um, you know, you go back to like the Scopes trial and they're all worried about the kids learning that they're from monkeys. And you can kind of see that happening now, this sort of constant thing of, oh, the ki- what about the kids? What are the kids going to do if they learn that they it's going to hurt their feelings? And I just like I think that that's a very um, infantilizing thing. And I think kids can handle it. At least I would have appreciated learning about it instead of having to learn it from the ground up and walk into it thinking that the earth was six thousand years old. I had like a disadvantage that affected my grades a little bit. So that was annoying. Man, it's coming down. Yeah. Can you hear that? I can't hear it. No, that's amazing. It's raining there. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, well, here, here's two things I like about creationism. Can I mention two things that I think are kind of true, kind of right? Um, yeah. Well, I, can, I can do that too. Yeah, that's it. Oh, great. So well, the first is kind of, well, and they're a kind of side ideas. One is Shizek brilliantly says, um, he says like it, it, one of, there was a creationist who went around the time of Darwin, whenever uh, Darwin was talking about, you know, these ancient animals, that the, the response was fossils are what god put there to yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Look, you know to make it look old, right so <laughs> the, devil, the devil so there's a kind of like uh they're they're basically simulacra they're they're the sedimentation of something that never existed uh, that for shizek is a brilliant ex- explanation of what object putier is of that we often we believe that there is there are things that we encounter that that we think um, or will give us wholeness and completeness, will kind of give us the thing. But as soon as we find them, we find these things are are kind of echoes of something that doesn't exist. So I think that's a great metaphor. Is that Interesting. Yeah. Object- so you're not coming at it from the fact that that's a bullshit claim. You're coming at it from the fact that it serves a kind of function in the psyche yeah. of people to... Like there's something really kind of we can use it to kind of describe something at least, which is, oh, yeah, we're constantly... There are fossils of like so for example you you know you look yeah you look at something and you go if i could get that that's then that's going to complete me and when you get it it's a yeah. it's a sedimented kind of death dead thing which has no connection to anything real um yeah but then, 
The other thing that I think is where Lacan called himself a creationist. And what he meant by that was he said that, that there was a moment when language arose that was not like an evolutionary gradual movement. The moment of language was kind of like almost like an equivalent to, to a creationist event. And I think that is correct. Like that Could there you is- also say it's like a big bang though? Like you could, could you, but also are we sure that from an anthropological level that language didn't slowly evolve for a while? Well, I think you can, I think you can, uh, show that language didn't evolve theoret from a philosophical perspective. Um, I see. Okay. We, and now you have to show more work on that, but I think you can. And the reason why I would say that is I think you have to make a distinction between communication and language. So communication is obviously where a sound is made and a response is generated. You know, an animal yeah. makes a sound, mating, danger, food, whatever. Um, language arises when something, not not like if you teach a monkey enough sign language, eventually it will speak, right? Not that kind of thing. But actually language arises when something drops out, when something is miscommunicated. And that, that event of dropping out is kind of like, uh, that's the beginning of language. So communication evolves, but the, for I, but I would argue and you know, too, that communication evolves, but the moment the communication becomes language, and this might happen with AI eventually, is the moment the communication becomes language is not when it becomes complex enough, but rather when something, when something is lost. Yeah, when it can't I, quite get its words out correctly. Yes, so language uh, always kind of like misses the mark. Um, very interesting. I, yeah. I mean, I, that's a, that's straight Lacanian, right? Uh, you, I mean, you did say Lacan, that's who said that. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking in terms of the just self-awareness, uh, and the evolution of the fact that we can reflect on ourselves, the fact that we can be aware of ourselves and also feel the tension, uh, of whatever we're going through in life and what we should be doing, like all that, like weird, that stuff that makes you human basically. Um, that seems very strange to me that that just kind of popped out and very like, uh, like we just started not liking ourselves at some point and, or, kill, you know, it's, it's very fascinating. And I do not subscribe to the, the strictly Darwinian thing. Like it does feel like something. And I, again, I can't show my work or prove any of this. And my intuition would say that there's some kind of thing going on or directing, Maybe it's a current that we're all going on. And the systems theory is really popular. Um, and it's sort of the idea that systems evolve, not just the organism, but the actual like groups of people together. And that, you know, and the different systems affect one another. That's all very fun. I don't think it has to be one or the other necessarily. Well, see, that's, that's interesting because, yeah, I like, I agree with you, like where I would want to make the argument that evolution uh, is a theory that kind of explains by bi biology, biological life. And the reason why I, but I, why I'm not a bi, uh, by, uh, uh, what an evolutionary psychologist, evolutionary psychology basically applies biological evolution yeah. to the realm of subjectivity. And the reason why I'm not is because I think that once subjectivity, once self-consciousness arises, uh, we have to take consideration of death drive, which, which therefore yep. means that, that biological evolution is not, does not fully yep. uh, connect. So that's where actually I agree with you where I think there might be difference, but I like this difference is 
you it sounds like you might want to kind of say that there is uh an in some sort of like underlying intelligibility or intelligence yeah you you want to stay away from the term id because it sounds like a disembodied you know puppeteer uh but some kind of thing going on i think it's i do go back to the evolutionary panentheism thing i like the i like that as a general understanding that fits in with both evolution and uh human nature i guess as a whole and so that i guess is the idea that it's there is something becoming conscious of itself we are god helping god become conscious of itself and and i could go with that if and of course i'm going to add my the bit that you may not want to go with, but the odd bit is, is that in terms of a panpsychism if if you try to argue that that antagonism or some sort of gap some sort of nothingness is what fundamentally enables self-consciousness like there has to be yeah yeah then then yeah i would kind of say that there is a kind of weird form of um consciousness or proto-consciousness in everything but by proto-consciousness i simply mean a type of abyss abyssal dimension everything yeah I like that. I think the, um, I mean, it's what dual aspect monism being the sort of like, we have our brains split things. We're ego, we're world splitters. Doesn't necessarily mean that, what is it? Kreipel says that a, a, um, epistemological dualism sits very well within an ontological monism. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah. And the only thing I'd say, and I don't know what he would think of this is that my interest is in the split. That, yes. that's, yeah. why, that's why I'm a dialectician, not a dualist. So like yeah. a dualist is interested in the split. It is the two sections. I would say a dialectician is interested in the and that rubbing together. That yeah, yeah. The split. But I'm sure he so yeah. Uh, yeah. You're referring biologically, by the way, to the corpus callosum, just so you know. Oh, thank you. Corpus callosum. Look out. Remember that. What yeah. is that? That's the That's the strip, the strip that connects the two hemispheres. Oh, very good. Yeah. And there's been a, one guy died and found, they opened up his uh, head and found that there was no brain in there except a little bit of the corpus callosum. He died suddenly and he, his parents called him and said, we have horrible news. Um, we're just, we're, we still don't know why your son died. We want to let you know that he was, um, he was mentally retarded. And uh, the parents said, no, he's lived an actually perfectly normal life. And he lived in like, had a job, had friends, had relationships, died suddenly and was found to have, not have a brain in his head. Okay, you, you can't just say that in such a blase. And that's way. our time, everybody. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> right, you could say mind blown, but not for him. It was just no. not not there. But yeah, there's a little thin strip. I believe it was the corpus callosum, or maybe it was a little bit of the prefrontal cortex. But besides that, it was just filled with fluid, just water. Because right, this 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 sounds like one of these stories that you hear in church of like you know, oh, and the 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 car ran out of petrol and then gas started to right. pour out of a rock. I mean, I believe you, but I'm like, you're telling me what age was this guy and what what? He's young, twenties. He's in his twenties. He grew up normally, and, and yeah. died suddenly. And when they and when they did an autopsy for whatever reason, they yes. found only a a fraction of the brain. A little bit, just a little baby brain, not even a brain, little piece of tissue. Now, what you're skipping over is <laughs> uh-huh. what you're missing is the 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 hours of entertainment you can get by imagining what that phone call was like for the parents who have undergone this tragedy, and then the doctors call 
and they're like, oh, we're going to find out what happened to Timmy. And they say, we don't know, but we're sorry to hear about your mentally retarded son. And then you as a grieving parent <laughs> to tell him that your kid was not that way. He was just doing his thing and then he died. And then <clears throat> that was the end of it. <clears throat> Imagine okay. getting that call. Yeah, like, but this, my mind is blown on so many levels and you're... <laughs> And now I one more. Okay. Creationism is uh, starting to look a lot more illogical. Uh, yeah. When we start getting into that. Right. Okay. Yeah, gonna, I think it's my guess. Is, as soon as we finish this, I'm going to be looking this up because I know what book I got it from, and um, I will. I will try to. I'll find the reference and try to see if I can because I'm also um, curious about it. You know about Mark Twain's dream? No. Mark Twain, Pete. Since we're having fun story time now, um, yeah. And I'll let you go. Also, my. Uh, card filled up so this might be my audio might be a little worse but it's okay so uh mark twain had a dream about his um brother you don't know about this i don't think so <clears throat> all right um something's clicking um, but they keep going so nothing something's know. something's clicking is that what you said some something in the back of my mind might be clicking but keep going okay um Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain, uh, was known to be eccentric. He predicted his death to coincide with the appearance of Halley's Comet. He had a passion for collecting young girls. I don't know what this website is. He invented products, including a self-pasting scrapbook and an elastic strap for pants. Good for him. Um, one of his most profound mystical experiences happened when Clemens was 23 years old. Uh, so Mark Twain worked as a steersman on a steamboat, and he got his brother Henry a job on the same steamboat in Pennsylvania. One night, the boat was docked in St. Louis. He slept over at his sister's house. Uh, this is where it gets crazy, so I'm not going to read this part. He dreamed that his brother was in an explosion, died. Okay? Terrible nightmare. And in the dream, he goes to see his brother in the funeral parlor. And he dreams that his brother is in a metal casket wearing one of Mark Twain's suits with a bouquet of white roses with a single red rose in the center on his chest. Shortly thereafter, guess what happens? Boiler explosion, his brother dies. Women in the town uh, gather, collect a bunch of money to have a metal casket for him, very fancy. They dress his brother's body in a suit of Mark Twain's. Mark Twain, devastated, goes to see him, walks into the room, metal coffin, wearing his suit, one detail missing. No bouquet, no bouquet of flowers. It's like, ah, oh, it's still great. Old lady walks in at that moment carrying a bouquet, all white roses with a single red rose in the middle and puts it on his brother's uh, chest. This haunted Mark Twain for the rest of his life. He eventually joined the American Psychical uh, Institute, which was one of the first uh, groups to be studying psychology in America. Very interesting. Very interesting. And then it turned out his brother didn't have a brain. <laughs> uh, these are two things I'm going to have to look up now. Wow. It's Very, fun, right? Yeah, that's a fun yeah. one. I'll definitely find you the one on the um, the guy without a brain because it is yeah. it's I read that in a book and was like, what? Uh, there weird, like there's a story, and I don't know if this is true, but there's a story of someone who was walking home late at night and a phone was ringing in like a payphone and he picked up the phone and the guy was looking for something. He said, no, it's a wrong number. And with some crazy 
almost unimaginable coincidence that the guy, yes, was looking for that person or something, but had phoned the yeah. wrong number and it was not as high as it was a pay phone, something weird like that. Love yeah, it. weird things happen. <laughs> weird things happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's, oh, you have something else? What were you yeah, no, I was just going to say, but the brain one's interesting because, I mean, you know, they obviously people are interested in how much of the brain is used and for what purposes and reasons like if that turns out to be true i guess that gives a lot more information as to what the different parts of the brains do what yeah yeah this was kind of it was all an argument about consciousness being like fundamental and not being a product of the brain but being the brain being the product of consciousness that kind of thing i think is that what you're talking about Oh, no, well, no, that sounds even more crazy. You know, I was just thinking that, like, yeah. uh, maybe there's large parts parts of the brain that, may, you know, do do stuff, but not stuff that are is vital for us to be able to communicate and do basic stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'd be very curious. I mean, they really glossed over. I remember reading and being like, there's no way he'd live that normal of a life. I mean, yeah. obviously, he died young, so that isn't good. But, you know, anyway, wild yeah. stuff. Very good. <laughs> uh you know, life is a constant, just beautiful mystery, uh, and evolution is fun, and creationism is fun, too. So, you know, and who's to say who's right, you know? <laughs> we all come with our metaphysical positions. And we all come with our, you know, yeah, it's like, we're all just, like, walking each other home, man. Um, all right, what else do you got, Pete? Is that all? Great. No, I'm, I'm excited about uh, doing this little weekly, or, well, not weekly, but regular uh, What Books Have Been Destroyed. That was fun. I think that's going to be a fun little... Yes thing and uh yeah any takeaways um i i guess my takeaway might be um it's fun to kind of like just instead of critiquing always like you know mocking different kind of positions is sometimes try to be empathetic enter into it kind of like listen to it and then try to you know try to isolate where the problem is but um it can be very good uh mental exercise better than sudokus that's what i think yeah that's my, my very underpoint takeaway. Yeah, it's philosophical cosplay. Yes. Put them on yes. and dress. Oh, look at me. I'm a little Sam Harris today. And that's fun, too. Um, yes. And then hopefully that makes you less numb and less dissociated. That's my biggest takeaway is try not to be numb and dissociated, even though it's very hard in today's society. So, so if you feel it, and that's what you are. There's nothing you can do about it. And I'm right there with you. Brilliant. All right. I well, should really start pre-writing my takeaways. All right. Thank you, everybody. I will talk to you, and Pete and I will talk to you next time, hopefully sooner than the previous episode. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.